right. Good morning, church. How are we? Good. I am Harley Rathel. I'm the campus pastor here at our Butikyle campus of Bannockburn Church, and I am glad to welcome you here this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, um, I'd love to have that opportunity. So feel free to stick around afterwards. What I try and typically do is get out to the lobby um, so that I can kind of be out there and get to meet some of you. So I really would love to do that. Um, we're about to jump into a really awesome story and passage. But before we do that, I had two quick requests to put in front of all of you. And I'm putting them right here because they're really quite important, or at least in my mind, quite important. Uh, one of those is to ask you, if possible, to come along to a church family meeting that we have this evening. So this evening at five o'clock at our South Austin campus, by the way, Bannockburn Church has three campuses. We have Butikyle, we have Dripping Springs, and we have South Austin. At our South Austin campus, all three campuses are coming together for a family meeting to consider and hear about information, detailed information about a piece of land that we're considering buying for this campus. So this is exciting, like really good and exciting news for us as a campus. As much as we love Evo, we would love to have our own permanent space and presence in this community. And so I really would love to invite all of you to come along. You don't have to be an official member to come to that meeting, just to hear what is going on. So that's going to be at five o'clock in the worship center today. And we'd love to have you join us for that. Now, the second request is related, and that is that at, uh, not at, during our service two weeks later, I'd really love for you to be here. And again, ask as many of you as possible to be here on the 29th. And that's because during the service or at the end of that service, that is when we are going to vote on that decision about that land. And so if you're a member and you're here, you'll participate in that vote. And so I'd really love to have as many of you here just kind of have that, a circle around that date on the calendar to make sure that you're here on the 29th. Because again, this is an exciting opportunity. This is a moment that we've been thinking and praying about together. And so I really want all of us, as many of us as possible to be involved in, in that. Cool? Awesome. Yeah, exciting times. Um, so what I'm going to do... I'm going to pray here for a moment. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray over all of that, the land, uh, this vote and this decision. And then I'm going to pray also that God would help us not to think about that right, right now. Because I think what He has is something for us to hear in His Word today. And as exciting that, as that is, I feel like I, I get up here and I, I kind of take you down one path with thinking about land and development and all of that. But I really want for that to not distract us from what God has to say to us today. Cool? So let's pray together, and then um, we'll dive into this in a moment. God, it's good to just take a moment to be still. We know that often it's when we finally get still that you speak. And God, we want to still our hearts. We want to trust in you for today and for the future. And God, we do give you the future of this church and in particular this campus of this church because God, we really do want to see your kingdom come and your will be done specifically in this geography. And so Lord, we pray for wisdom as we consider this piece of land out near Hayes High School. And Lord, if that is what you have for us as a church, would you just open those doors wide? 
would you make it obvious that that's where you're calling us to be? And Lord, as we collectively as a church seek your will on this and and for direction and, and provision, God, would you bless every part of that? Lord, we also want to ask now in this moment as we turn to open your word, as we consider what it means for us, we, w- we want to ask that you would speak. Lord, would you speak in this room to every person who is here? Lord, from the person who has known you for a long, long time and has walked with you, right through to the person who maybe is just exploring faith and doesn't even know you. God, I pray that you would speak. Be at work amongst us in these next few minutes. Thank you. Amen. A story can be a powerful and gripping thing, or a story can be stale and boring, right? I think you can probably think of examples of both of those, good storytelling and bad storytelling. In fact, one of my best examples of storytelling comes from an animated movie, which sounds a little bit strange, but I don't know if you've seen the movie Up, but in the movie Up, there is like just a couple of minutes, this small montage of clips where there is no dialogue, but in this space of time, they tell the story of the life of the main character, Carl, and his wife, Ellie. If you're familiar with the movie, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about because it shows how they meet and how they fall in love. And then it goes on to show them getting married and how they have all these hopes and dreams that they're starting to fulfill. They buy a house together. And then finally, uh, they decide, you know, hey, we'd love a family together. And then as you continue to watch these scenes that just flash by, again, no dialogue, you've come to discover that they can't have children they, for, for whatever reason. And yet through that, they choose to love each other and to continue to pursue dreams. But those dreams don't really come to fruition because life gets in the way. They have to pay for the things of life. And as you watch this clip go on, what you come to discover as they start to get older, Ellie gets sick. And then finally, Carl, again, no dialogue, goes home alone. And I, I don't know what it is about it, but that is great storytelling, at least to me, because I'm not a crier, but that scene, those few scenes play, and I'm, I'm gone. I'm just crying. In fact, this week, I wanted to make sure I was telling you the right details about that clip. So I look it up. I find it. I'm sitting by myself watching this clip on my computer, and I'm crying. I'm like, what am I doing? I look like a complete fool here, but it's great storytelling. It's really great storytelling. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm going to imagine that all of you I'm not going to name any names, but all of you, like me, know people who perhaps think that they're great storytellers that are not. Uh, And so they're the type of people that are telling a story and you're like, okay, come on, let's, let's get to the point. Or I've already heard this story 15 times before. And all of you are too gracious to ever actually say either of those things, but that happens in the world. Stories become boring. They can become stale. And so... I want to ask you, how do you feel about the stories that are in the Bible? Are they fresh? Are they engaging? Are they powerful to you? Or are they perhaps a little bit old, a little worn out? I've been preparing for this message this morning, and it's about one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. 
And I've been reminded just how riveting and scandalous it must have been to the early hearers of this story. In fact, I believe you would have heard a pin drop as Jesus, this incredible, awesome storyteller, powerfully and passionately told this story. And so we're about to read this well-known story, and I want to ask you, will you let it be dull, or will you seek to hear the depth and intensity that this story holds? I hope that your heart and your posture would be the latter, that you'll be like, okay, I'm open to listening to this with fresh ears. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We will have the words on the screen. Sometimes it's great to open a Bible or a Bible app to follow along. But as you turn to Luke chapter 15, what you're going to see here is that there's several stories that Jesus is telling. And we call these stories parables. If I was trying to explain quickly what a parable is, it's fiction with real life applications. It's fictions that has some very strong ties to reality. And so here we find in Luke chapter 15, actually a series of parables. And we're going to go to the one that's found in verse 11. And we're going to read a large portion of this right through to verse 24. And if, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, you may be like, Harley, that actually isn't the whole parable. And that's correct, because this is a two-week series. We're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, but we could call it the parable of the prodigal sons, because there's two sons, and we're going to look at the first son, the younger son, today. And so with that said, let's read together what we find in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. It says this, And he, that's Jesus, said, and he jumps into story mode, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began 
to celebrate. I believe there's four primary ways that we can hear this story. And I want to speak to three of those today and leave one because that one in particular is about the second son. And so we're going to leave that to the side, but let's look at three primary ways that we can hear this story. One way that we can hear this story is to see it as a story capturing the beauty and depth of God's grace. You see, this story was told to amaze. Don't lose sight of that. Think about the absurdity of this story, especially to the Jews who were listening to this. It would have been shocking to them from start to finish. And I don't know if we fully capture that. So I just want to review with you what the story contains and see how shocking it would have actually been. It's not too shocking when the story starts out and there's a man who has two sons. That's, that's normal, right? But when you get to verse 12, we have in verse 12 a request from the younger son. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This would have been shocking because essentially, if you want to paraphrase that, what he is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I mean, that's what he's saying. The crowd, there would have been a gasp in the crowd when they heard that. And they would have expected in the moment for the father to come back at the son and rebuke him either verbally or even physically. Like to say, hey, get out of here. What are you talking about? No. This youngest son is wanting his third of the property. In the culture, he would have been expecting a third as the younger son. The older son would have had two thirds. So that's shocking. The request is shocking. But what's maybe even more shocking is the amazing fact that the father agrees. It doesn't tell us what process happened, but all of a sudden the father is selling off his property so he can fulfill this horrible request of this son. And I say horrible because for this family, they would have had this legacy of passing down this property from generation to generation. This was their land. This was their identity. And yet this youngest son is saying, hey, I want you to cut off a third of it and give it to me. And so they're selling out part of their identity. They're selling out part of their estate for this son. And so this happened and the son goes off and goes scandalously crazy. Again, the shock continues because he goes off and I mean, this is headline news type of material. This guy goes wild. If you read verse 13, it says, he here in this distant country, he squandered his property on reckless living. And we think, okay, what is reckless living? It is not a home alone moment where he is staying up late and eating pizza on the couch. This is not what we're talking about. Like this is wild living. In fact, if you read on into the story where we'll go next week, the older brother gives us a much more vivid description. Verse 30, he's talking to the father and he says, this younger son has devoured your property with prostitutes. And so he does this wild living thing. And he spirals out of control until he finally hits what? Rock bottom. And even when he hits rock bottom, it would have created a gasp to these Jews because where does he find himself? Well, he finds himself feeding pigs. This is an animal that is disgusting to a Jew. It's unclean. And here he is hanging out with these pigs and even wanting what they're eating. And this is where the turning point comes. If you look at verse 17, this is the important part. It says, 
but when he came to himself. Finally, he has this moment of coming to himself. And what's maybe shocking for us as modern American individualistic listeners is that he doesn't start at this moment when he comes to himself on a path of self-help. To us, we would think, well, maybe the right path back is to have some change, to self-empowerment, to re-earn his father's approval. And yet that's not the path that he takes. He doesn't try to go back up the way that he came. He realizes and realizes rightly that there is no path back except to go and to beg. In fact, maybe a better description would be to say to go and to to grovel to his father and to expect from his father, if anything, limited grace. As we read on though, the amazement continues because as the son is returning, the father is actually even looking for this horrible son. And when he sees him, he, he runs after him. Again, these Jewish listeners would have been like, wait, what? This old patriarch of the family loses his dignity. He's running towards this horrible son. And as he goes to him, rather than the son needing to come to him on his hands and knees, he he embraces him, he kisses him, he welcomes him back. And the son, I think, is probably thrown off by this. He's like, okay, what do I do here? And then he's like, oh, my speech. And so he jumps back into his rehearsed speech, right? You saw that in the story. And as he's giving his rehearsed speech, the father seems to completely ignore it. And instead, the father asks for all these things to be given to the son and the father forgives and welcomes him back. Look at verse 24 with me. It's actually really beautiful. It says, for this, my son was dead. This is not, hey, this my delinquent son, my horrible son. No, he is welcomed back. He is called, given that label of son. And so as we read this, I want to ask you, what do you think of this story? And as I ask you that, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to not see this as a nice story that gives you warm fuzzies. I don't want you to see it as a nice warm fuzzy story about a kind father and a teenage son who's just been a teenager. No, it's much more than that. It's intense. And in some ways, this story is absolutely absurd. From start to finish, like we said, this story would have been riveting as Jesus told it. And so you've got to imagine this crowd, all of them are leaning in, hanging on every word. And what the listeners would have felt about the Father in particular would have been interesting. And I, I think some of us, maybe as we're listening, we can identify with this too. Because in one sense, they would have felt about the Father of this thought of, wow, what an amazing and gracious guy. What an incredible dad. I wish my dad was like that. Like that would have been one of the sentiments in that crowd. But the other sentiment would have been to think, how can this father possibly welcome back such a son as this with open arms like he is? And so there would have been both feelings of awe and horror at the same time. And so I'm going to talk more about these feelings in just a moment. But for now, let's just say that one way that we can hear this story is to see it as a story that captures the beauty and depth of God's grace. We can just read it and say, wow, that's an incredible story of God's grace and redemption. Pictures it beautifully. 
But a second way that we can read this story, I told you we're going to look at three ways. A second way is to make it more personal. We can see this story as a story picturing a prodigal that you or I know and care about. It could be for you a a family member or a friend or perhaps even a child. It's quite easy to hear this story and to insert. If you have one of a prodigal in your sphere, it's quite easy to read this story and to insert someone in as that son because most of us, a lot of us, have prodigals in our lives that we know. A prodigal, if you look up Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is this, or at least according to this secular definition, one who spends or gives lavishly and foolishly or... One who is returned after an absence. In fact, according to the Bible, it's both of those things. But I don't think this definition actually goes far enough. If I was to redefine what a prodigal is, I would say that it is a person who drags his or her family through the mud. That's what a prodigal is. And I say that with care having personally seen the pain that a prodigal creates in a family. My sister is, my sister was, she's passed away and I have hope that she is in God's presence, whole and full right now. But she was the textbook prodigal. And so it's hard when you, when you have that person that you're close to, it's hard to hear this story any other way. The pain and the desire for reconciliation doesn't allow us to hear it another way. We put that person into the story. And the good news is that God is a God who is in the business of bringing back hearts, bringing home wayward children. If you read the earlier two stories that we have here, there are two parables that come before this. One is about a lost coin and the other is about a lost sheep because God is in the business of restoration. And it's always, as we read this story and as perhaps some of you in this room are thinking about that prodigal, a question that may be in your heart and in your mind is, what can I do for that prodigal? How can I help? How can I be a part of their, their reconciliation with God the Father? And that's where it's hard because in some ways we feel like our hands are tied. But I want to give you three things that I want to encourage you to do. One is to pray. And I don't just say that willy-nilly. Pray. Continue to pray. When God tells us when we pray, we are to pray and to petition Him. That means to come over and over and over again. If you have a prodigal in your life, pray for them. And don't give up on praying for them. Secondly, I want to encourage you, if there is a prodigal in your life, to love them and seek God's wisdom on how to love them. Because if you have a prodigal in your life, you know that sometimes what's needed is a very gentle and warm love, and then other times it's a very hard and difficult love. And you need wisdom and grace to know how to love that person, but love them. Don't stop loving them. And then thirdly, I'd like to encourage you to trust God. Pray love and trust God. He is a faithful and good God. I'm going to do something a little bit strange here in that I'm going to take a time out in this sermon. And I want to just pray for prodigals. We're talking about prodigals. Why wouldn't we pray for them? So let's pray for some of the prodigals that maybe you have association with. And again, it may be a friend, maybe a family member, and maybe in particular children. 
And so I want to ask all of us across this room to just bow our heads for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to just maybe picture that person that you have on your heart or your mind. And maybe you don't. You can just pray for the prodigals that are in this room. But I want to ask you to just picture that person, maybe think of their name and be in agreement as I pray this this prayer. God, um, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you are a God who has open arms of embrace. And God, right across this room, there are people picturing people they love who need your embrace, who need your grace. And Lord, we're asking together in this moment for miracles, for transformation to come, for people to be welcomed back, for people to know you and to be in right standing with you and with their families. Lord, we pray for every single person that is in, pictured in the hearts and minds of the people in this room now. Would you be at work in each of these situations and scenarios? We thank you that you are a big and good God. We thank you that you are in the business of reconciliation. May we even hear from today stories of reconciliation and miracles, God. We're asking for that and we're asking for that boldly because you tell us to come to you and to ask. And so we're asking. Thank you that you hear us. Amen. So sometimes we picture other prodigals when we read this parable or we hear this parable. But a third way to hear this parable is to see it as a story portraying us as the prodigal. Depending on your story, this may or may not be easy for you. If you've walked or even walking right now a path of darkness where you're like kind of pushing away from God and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't want to have anything to do with Him, it's very easy for you to say, yeah, I, I, I am or I was the prodigal. You can identify with that. In fact, this week I sat with uh, two friends that I knew that didn't know each other and heard them kind of telling bits of each other's stories to each other. And both of them had come from such dark places. God had rescued them. It was really cool just listening into that conversation this week. However, for others of us, and I say us because this is where I land, we find it a little harder to see ourselves as the younger son. In fact, we find it a lot easier to identify with the older brother who is the good brother. And if that's you, again, please come back next week. You need to hear about that, really. But what I want us to think about is this, and I, I believe this is 100% true. No matter who you are, all of us must have a prodigal son moment of reconciliation with the father. We all need to have that. Really, my, my first moment like that was when I was a young man, when I was like probably like six or seven. Wherever it is, we need to have that moment. And here's why. We have all sinned and we are all disgusting in the sight of God the Father before we experience His embrace. Romans 3, 23, you may have heard this before. It's very famous, but it's very true. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us gets to walk straight into the Father's family. We all need to have that moment of reconciliation. If you don't see the fact that you are broken and a prodigal at some moment in your life, 
you will never seek to receive the grace of God the Father. It just won't make sense to you, right? Somebody will stand up in front of you at a church and say, you need the forgiveness of God. And you're like, well, I'm not that bad. No, you are. You are. 1 John 1 verse 8. Listen to this. This was actually in my Bible reading this week. I'm like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9. 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Listen to what verse 9 says though. It says, but if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Isn't that good news? Do you know who was listening to this story in this moment? It's really interesting. As Jesus is telling this parable, the context is given to us actually in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, to hear Him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. That's the religious people. They grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And this is where the parables kick in. There are two distinct groups here, very different from each other, listening to Jesus. And Jesus has been accused of being friends with sinners. And by the way, when it says that, it's not talking about like a whole bunch of people who are reveling in their sin. No, these are people who are like, I'm bad and I need help, so I'm going to Jesus. I'm looking for help. I'm looking for restitution. And so one group is ready and eager to receive the grace of God. The other group is not convinced they need God's grace. And so as I give you that explanation, I want to ask you, where are you? Where do you sit today? Do you realize your need for God's grace? Do you value the cost of that grace? If you've experienced the embrace of God the Father, that was a costly embrace. I said earlier that the crowd listening to Jesus probably felt awe and horror, which is a strange combination of things. Awe at how awesome the Father was to fully embrace this rotten son, and yet horror at the thought that this miserable son was welcomed back. Because there's this part of us that as we hear this story, the sense of justice in us should well up and say, well, at what cost? Our God-given sense of justice says we, we, we want to understand how the Father could embrace this Son again. And so I was thinking about that this week. I was like, how can this Father embrace this Son who has, you know, drugged the family name through the mud and, and been so horrible and so mean and so reckless? And as I was considering this and thinking about this, I was listening to one pastor I really respect on this, and he reminded me of something interesting, and that is that this is, as we've already said, the third parable in succession. If you read parable number one, it's about a lost sheep that is searched for and is found. You go on then into the second parable. Jesus is telling these straight after each other. The second parable is about a lost coin that is searched for and is found. You come to the third parable and there is a lost son that is not searched for. As we read this, there should be something in our minds like these early listeners that's like, wait a sec, who's meant to be looking for this lost son? And if you dig into that question, really the answer is the older brother. 
it, it, culturally, it would have been the older brother's responsibility to go and to find his lost younger brother and to pay off his debt at expense to himself and to restore the family ma- name. That is his responsibility as the older brother. We need a true and better elder brother, unlike the one in this story, who will find us and restore us, even at great expense to himself. And that's exactly who Jesus is. This void in the story, where there's nobody stepping in to search for and to restore this brother, points us to Jesus. What was the cost for us to be received as wayward sons and daughters to receive the embrace of God the Father? That's a good question to ask. Because there was an expense here in this story, right? Like as the son's welcome back, a a robe is put around him, all these things happen to him, but those were things that somebody had to pay for. And so we need to ask, as we experience the embrace of God the Father, uh, who, who is paying for that? What does that look like? We experience the embrace of God the Father because of the death of the Son of the Father. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death. But it goes on and says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That free gift is free to us like it was to that younger son. He walks back and gets what he doesn't deserve. He gets a robe, he gets a ring, he gets shoes, and he gets sonship back. He has a restored title, but it cost God the Father. It cost Jesus his life to give us that reconciliation, that right standing. That is why we call this whole thing not just grace, but amazing grace. I hope that you're seeing with me that this story is not stale or dull or boring. This is the very essence of what a Christian believes and hopes in. The awesome grace of God is described for us. And if you're a Christian, this story captures what should fuel each and every day of your life. The fact that you have been embraced by God the Father because we are all prodigals. Whether we see it or not, we are all prodigals. And so I want to ask you, if, you, if we're all prodigals, where are you at in your journey? Are you running from Him? Are you off in that distant land, ignoring God, ignoring His call? Or are you at rock bottom in the lowest of lows? And maybe that's why you're at church today. Others of you maybe recently have experienced the embrace of the Father and you're celebrating and you're loving life and what God's calling you to. You're in a good moment. And I'm going to picture for others of you, and maybe I should say others of us, that moment of reconciliation was a long time ago. And so maybe that grace isn't as amazing as it once was. And you need to be reminded again today of the low that you were in and the place that you were rescued from to be reminded of how amazing God's grace is because it's become overly familiar. 
I don't know which of these descriptions, or maybe none of these, but I don't know which of these fits you. But my prayer is this morning that no person would be able to leave this room without knowing and experiencing the love and embrace of God the Father because His arms are open. Not because you've earned those open arms, but because He has given them freely at great expense to Himself. As you consider that today, I want to ask you to just think about this embrace and to think about where you stand as a prodigal before God. Let's pray.